Good morning. Um, a reading from Deuteronomy. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or is a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. For, for as, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken, and I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Altogether, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the, our God will stand forever. Please uh, remain standing. Um, do you ever just hear these passages and say, like, what? So let's ask the Lord for help. Lord, um, it's true. Sometimes we're really puzzled by these ancient words, and we need your spirit to decipher them and to understand them and to understand what they could possibly mean for us today. And so we um, want to make our hearts really soft and fertile to receive your word, um, but we are naturally hard-hearted. I just confess that we are hard-hearted and stubborn, and we'd rather not listen to your word. Uh, but I pray by, by your spirit, uh, you would do something new. And we would pray this to the glory of Jesus, your son, our savior. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If you're a visitor, I'm Ronnie. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, have you guys seen that? It came out a couple of years ago, I think. It was a documentary on Netflix called The Great Hack. Anyone see The Great Hack? If you haven't, it's, it's, it's fascinating. But in this documentary, it um, picks up and highlights um, the 2010 national elections in Trinidad and Tobago. So if you don't know what Trinidad and Tobago is, a small island just north of Venezuela. And uh, that country is divided basically by two main sort of groups, two racial groups. On one hand, you have the sort of black and black, uh, black African. And on the other hand, you have the Indian and Amerindian group. And those, are, those really kind of make up the two main, main racial profiles in the country. But they also make up the two main um, parties, political parties in uh, Trinidad and Tobago. So what had happened is leading up to the elections in 2010, there arose this, this media campaign, this new political movement among the sort of black African sector. It was called like do so or hashtag do so. 
And, and the idea was it was a form of protest for the, the, the sort of youth in the black African party. And it was this idea that the system has let us down, right? And we're tired of it. And, uh, and it was their way of showing disappointment and frustration with the system and their leaders. And uh, the main empowering element of it was to, was to boycott the elections. And it was powerful. This movement, Do So, was powerful. And it, was, um, it felt authentically theirs. It was empowering. And it gave an entire block of people a voice publicly expressing their dissatisfaction. Well, when the elections come, came, uh, all the do-so participants, they stayed home, and they're a major voting block, right? And turns out the Indian candidate ends up winning the elections because, you know, well, he stayed home. Well, it turns out that the Indian party paid a British company called Cambridge Analytica to help them with their campaign. And so what Cambridge Analytica does is studies all the social media data, kind of understands the persuasions of certain blocks, and they uh, manufactured this movement that results in an entire block staying home. So from their offices in London, they created the Do So movement. And uh, this entire voting block of African youths, they felt like they were being empowered. They felt like what they were feeling inside was authentically them. That was their own beliefs, but they, turns out, were the pawns of someone else's political and ideological wars. Sobering. This is the world that we live in. We are self-deceived if we think that we are above that level of influence. Social media, media, all these news outlets make, it, make us particularly susceptible to outside voices. Voices that want to shape us and shape what we believe about the world and what we believe about ourselves. And if we're honest, it's really hard to know like, which voices we should trust and let guide us. I mean, which voices are we going to follow? Which voices are we going to allow to tell us who we are? That's the question that Israel would be confronted with as they enter into the promised land. Which voices are they going to listen to? And not them only, that's where we are today, right? When we step into the world, every time we turn on a screen, every time we drive down the road and there's a billboard, there are tons of voices trying to guide us. And how do we know who we should listen to and follow? I mean, whose voice can we trust? So if you're new, we've been in the sermon series. Uh, on the, we're studying the writings of Moses. We're kind of in the back nine now, and we're in Deuteronomy. And what we've said is Deuteronomy is a series of farewell speeches by Moses. Moses can't go with Israel, so he's saying goodbye and leaving them with these words of encouragement and exhortation. So last week, he said, well, listen, when you guys get to the promised land, you are going to put a king over you. You're going to give someone uh, the right to govern you. You need an ideal king. And this week, he's like, when you get to that land, there are going to be voices trying to guide you. There are going to be all these different voices. You need a prophet, an ideal prophet. And that's what, that's what we heard this morning. Prophet is an authorized spokesman for God. 
And his voice is the one we should listen to in this marketplace of voices. All right? So that's what we're going to, as we study this passage, two headings are going to emerge. You'll see verses 9 through 14, we're going to see the warning. There's a warning here for us. And then uh, 15 through 18 is this ideal prophet. We're going to learn more about this ideal prophet. So let's go ahead and start with the first one, the warning. So when, like we said, when Israel gets to the land, right, they're leaving Sinai, they're going into the land, and there's going to be these really seductive, compelling, rational, you like that word? Rational voices all claiming to be adequate guides for our lives. Guideposts for demystifying the future and even promises for making their life go well. And so when you look at this list of people in the first section, particularly in in verses 11 and 12, I want you to think about that list as voices of people who are making promises about the future, right? These abominable practices, as, as he describes them in verse 10, are ways of securing promises. Look there in verse 10 in your Bibles. It says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, or anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. All right. That's a really weird list for modern people, right? Uh, But these practices, I want you to think of them as a means for securing promises of a meaningful life. These were common practices in the ancient Near East. Uh, That is what was intuitive for those cultures. When they looked inside and they thought, how do you relate and secure and understand the future? That was intuitive for them, those means that are in that list. So burning a son or a daughter. So there are these inhabitants right, in the promised land, in Canaan. They're called Canaanites. And uh, they had a god named Moloch. And you could actually Google this, but Moloch was, uh, was uh, you know, he was essentially this metal figurine, this big figurine. He kind of has like a bull head or like a cow's head. And he was always created with his arms out like this. And what the Canaanites would do is they would put his arms into a furnace, into a fire, until it was burning red hot. And then when it was red hot, they would leave it in there longer until it's white hot. And then you would take your baby and you would put it in the arms of Moloch. And Moloch would consume the baby. And the idea is, if, if, sacrifice, if I sacrifice the offspring of my body, I will secure a good life for myself. I will curry favor from the gods. Well, that was logical in their, in their cultural moment. Now, before I move on, just a little side note. It's not like really popular to say one culture is superior to another culture. But cultures that sacrifice babies are inferior cultures. I, I, I just want to say that. We're not all equal here. Cultures who try to uh, curry favor of adults at the expense of babies to live a better life are inferior cultures. I just want to throw that out there. I mean, every culture has blind spots. Some are bigger than others, right? But the idea is these practices are a means of putting a person in contact with voices, 
that will guide them. Moses says, God hates that. Like, don't be seduced by the voices in your land, right? That's around there. They're going to tell you to do life like that. Don't do that. Now, listen, fam. We're tempted to look at these, this list here and say, got it, Ronnie. I'm not really tempted to go to a fortune teller. No. Like, I know for me, it's just not a weakness of mine. I'm just not like, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to a fortune teller today. Like, it's kind of weird. I'm probably not going to do that, right? Uh, now, it is, uh, a little side note again, worth mentioning. So I moved to Denver seven months ago, and we move into Central Park, and my wife gets on the Central Park group, Facebook group, just to kind of know what's going on in the neighborhood. Several people are like, hey, if anyone has a psychic or a fortune teller reference, please just let me know. Highly educated, respectable people, college educated, graduate school, are all asking for references on psychic and fortune tellers. So it's a thing, apparently. All right? People, I just read this, Generation Z, the younger generation, are so hungry for spirituality that witchcraft is actually on the rise among Generation Z. Y'all read about this? It's a big deal. So, I mean, this younger generation wants, wants spirituality, right? They want goosebumps, but they want it in a context where they can ask the, you know, cast a spell and ask a God to give them something, right? They get goosebumps and they get to ask and curry favor to get something. And when you hear witchcraft, don't think of like black hats, just think of like pleasant Wiccans or something, right? But, but the idea, this is why Christianity is so hard, right? When we go to God and we don't get them to give us something, we're like, we're giving you, God, our lives. That's why Christianity is a hard sell, by the way. Because we're, we come to God and not ask for anything, but we give ourselves away. But here's the thing, even if you are not persuaded or tempted or attracted to those kinds of voices like necromancers, you are still being spoken to by a kind of spiritual Cambridge Analytica. Are y'all following me on this? My friend, he, uh, Jeff, he puts it like this. He's like, listen, if you got rat poison, you pick it up, you eat it, you die. But with carbon monoxide, you don't pick it up. You don't even know it's there, and yet it is killing you just the same as ingesting rat poison. And we are wading through this deep cloud of voices, this accepted logic aiming to guide us, and we don't even know it's there, but it might be killing us. I, listen, I'm not trying to be alarmist here, you guys, but listen, uh, can, I just, can we just talk about Frozen for a second here? Every, like, parent with, like, small children know exactly what I'm talking about. So Elsa, uh, her famous song. Can we, can we just do, like, lyric review here? This is what she says. Let it go, let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go. Turn away, slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small. The fears that once controlled me, it can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do. Test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. There's a logic there. There's an intent. Elsa said, I'm going to do me. I'm going to listen to myself. It doesn't matter that my choices are going to create this intolerable winter for the city and all those poor people are going to get frostbite. Right? Why? Because she is listening to her own voice. Good on her. 
Now, look, I, look, I, I know that the movie doesn't end like that, but that's the only song that got play on the radio, right? Over and over and over again. It's, it became a cultural anthem, right? You only need to listen to yourself. First of all, that's really bad for you, everyone. But second, it doesn't even work. It's actually an illusion that you're listening to yourself or being true to the voice that's in your heart. Uh, let me give you another example. See if I can't flesh this out. I'm a little abstract here. So Joanna Gaines, everyone, fixer upper Chip and Joanna, right, from Waco, Texas, I guess. So she's quite a businesswoman, apparently. She produces a magazine called Magnolia Journal. And uh, the theme of the magazine, uh, you know, has a different theme. It comes out quarterly. One of those quarters, the theme was be free. Like, be free to be yourself. And because she's an interior designer and quite um, creates beautiful things, she created a room that would express this kind of freedom. I mean, what does freedom look like manifest in your furniture, right? You know? So in this magazine, there's this beautiful room uh, with this hanging wall art. And it was a picture of a unicorn shooting rainbows out of its mouth. So internal freedom is expressed as a unicorn shooting rainbows out of its mouth. So what's the problem? Unicorns and rainbows are cultural artifacts. They're cultural artifacts. If you told someone 200 years ago to be themselves, never in their wildest imagination would they put up a picture of a unicorn shooting rainbows out of its mouth. Right? Do you understand that? Why? Because it's the voice of the culture that's determining what it means for you to be you. Culture is shaping our imagination, our desires, and the things that we want to do. There's no such thing as just be you. We always listen to the voices. And, and so when you rebel and you leave home to find yourself, you, you leave uh, like the, 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 the sort of straitjacket of home and the rules and the spiritual legacy of your parents, when you leave all that to go explore and you hit the road, you are driving on a road that was paved by someone else's, someone else and their idea of where you should want to go. You didn't create that road. You're just following someone else's idea. It's an illusion. The idea that you're listening to yourself is just not true. And more than that, you don't want it to be true. My, again, my friend Jeff, he says, listen, if you don't have access to outside voices, where will you find the help to iron out all the contradictions that you find in yourself? I mean, if it's just you and only you, you will devolve into absurdity. I mean, right, you, on one hand, you want this great family and great family life, and on the other hand, you want to ascend the corporate ladder. So which one do you choose? Because you want both. At some point, you got to get out of yourself and listen. So for Israel, God is saying, when you get into the land... Don't listen to that dark medium of voices. They are abhorrent. But more than abhorrent, they don't even work. It's foolish to follow them. 
It's an illusion. Don't do it. And then for us today, God is saying, the voices inside of your heart, they're still a medium of culture. They're still a product of culture. Don't listen to it. They don't even work. It's an illusion. It's foolish. Don't do it. Why? Because there is a voice that you must listen to. And the voice that you must listen to actually gives life. It's, it's interesting because later on in Deuteronomy 30, Moses is going to go on to say, he's going to say, See, I've set before you today life and good and death and evil. If you obey his commandments, the commandments of your Lord God, that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live. Therefore, choose life. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. When the other voices, other than God's voices, when these other voices have a primacy in your life, it produces death, and it, and it inhibits flourishing. That is the warning that Moses is offering them, and he's offering us. It's a warning. Death. Choose life, though. All right, so here we are. We know now, great, ideally, we must listen to God's voice there's a problem, though, that Moses anticipates, and it's that we won't listen. And not only because cultural narratives are so pervasive and inescapable, but because if we're going to listen to God's voice, we have to be with him. We have to be in his presence, and that we cannot do. And our stage right, point two, the prophet. All right, how are we doing? Following this along? The prophet. So do you remember that event that happens in Exodus 19? So Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments are given, right? So in Exodus 19, God calls Moses up to the mount, uh, top of Mount Sinai, and there's thunder and lightning and earthquakes, and no one, no thing was even able to touch the mountain, otherwise they'd be obliterated, they'd be killed instantly. So hearing the voice of God was like this horrible experience. It's like being adjacent to an atomic bomb being dropped. And so the rest of Israel, who was like nowhere even near Mount Sinai, they were scared witless. Like, have you guys ever uh, experienced unbridled fear? I mean, unbridled fear. Like, I was at 5,000 feet in a plane with a parachute on my back, and they opened the bay, the bay doors, and the world looks like a map. Unbridled fear, Right? That kind of fear is what the words of God were like. So they need like the words of God, but they can't handle the voice of God. That's what's being alluded to here in verses 15 through 17. Look back in your Bibles there. Verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Mount Horeb, Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same mountain, everyone, on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die, right? They think they're going to die. And the Lord said to me, they're right. And <laughs> what they're spoken to, they're right. It was horrifying. So they don't want that experience ever again. So how do they solve 
this tension. A prophet. So a prophet is a mediator, a kind of a go-between that you can, that someone who can give you the precise words of God without being, uh, without the fear of being consumed, right? Without that atomic bomb. Now, let me just real quick, clarification on prophets. Jason alluded to this in our church-wide discipleship. There's a common misconception of prophets. So we, tar- we normally think of prophets as people who predict the future. They're not. They're not people who primarily just tell the future. They're not foretelling. They're primarily forthtelling, right? In other words, they're speaking God's word on God's behalf. So in short, like a, a prophet is a person who can speak on behalf of another with full authority. So that's how come, like for instance, Aaron was, uh, was called a prophet. Not because Aaron predicted the future, he never did, but he spoke on behalf of Moses because Moses kind of had like a speech impediment or something, right? So he's a prophet, an authorized spokesman. So in this case, the prophet mediates God's words on his behalf. Look there, the second part of verse 18. He says, I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. Are y'all seeing that? Now, the thing to remember is that a mediator is usually introduced and arrives when a relationship is broken, right? I mean, think about like a marriage. Husband and wife are at an impasse, and they call a third party, a mediator, to help them with it. Or maybe a business right? A business. There's two entities uh, that are having a problem, and so they bring in a mediator to help broker a resolution. Y'all see how that works? In this case, a mediator is introduced to help aid and heal this relationship. And it's important to understand it like that because the words of this prophet, the mediator, might be strong, but they come from a place of love. It's really important that y'all get your brain around this. The hard words of a prophet have to be interpreted through the filter of love. It's like a father giving a child parameters for the sake of love and flourishing. So so what, what could this mean for us? I mean, what does it mean when God is telling you to stay in a hard marriage? Right? And, and to identify and change deep patterns of pride and resentment that you have used to cut down your wife and kids. What does it mean when, when God tells you to pay workers fair wages, even when it cuts into your profit margin, right? And, and that might mean you have to accept a different lifestyle because generosity is the right thing. What does it mean when when God's word requires you to give up something that feels so natural or feels like it's the thing that gives you security? What does it mean? Here's what it means. It means that he loves you. He loves you. Those prophetic words peel back the illusion and posture us to live a full And true life. Choose life. The words of life are not found in our culture's voices or what our culture is promising or even how our inner voice, which is simply parroting the persuasions of the day, it's not found in those things. Life is found 
in God's words. Now, listen, I, I know that there might be someone here just who find this almost impossible to believe. I mean, part of the reason is, like, we look at the subject, like, whatever topic the Bible is speaking of, and we take it to trial. We see if what God is saying is consonant with what we already believe. And if it is, then we believe it. But if it contradicts our pre-held beliefs and intuitions, then we reject it. And we see this phenomenon, like, so many spheres of life It used to be back in the day that people used to choose their ideological and political beliefs based on their faith community. But now we choose our faith communities to suit our ideological and political beliefs. Not everyone, but that's a thing. It's a thing. We've made ourselves the arbiters of truth. And we work backwards to maintain ourselves as the rulers and the prophets of our own lives. We allow Christianity to agree with us, especially when we're talking about love and grace. But we don't allow Christianity to change us. Now listen to me real quick, because I don't know how you're hearing me right now. I'm not picking on anyone in this room. You know what I'm doing? Is I'm confessing to you my sin. It's me. I'm talking about me. I do this, and I'm sorry. I want to grow. I study these passages, and I want to grow. I want to sit under God's hard truths. I want you to do it with me. So what can we do? I really believe that the words of God would become beautiful and persuasive to us like if we could really understand him, like see him, to have a relationship with him. Because it's hard to have a relationship with the words of God. Why? Because we have relationship with people, not with words, right? So let me just conclude by just bringing to our attention just two features that are hidden in this passage that as I was studying it, just, man, it just lit my heart on fire. Verse 15, there's just so much there. Look there again in in verse 15. Moses says that one day, God will raise up for you a prophet. A prophet. And first of all, it doesn't say that God is going to raise up prophets, plural. He's just talking about one prophet. One particular prophet. So like for years, like the rabbis would, would pour over this part of scripture. They're all waiting For this prophet. So when John the Baptist arrives in the New Testament, he comes on the scene, he's this really eccentric guy. He's garnering quite a support, a lot of support and following, right? And the leaders of the Jews sent priests from Jerusalem to John the Baptist to interrogate him. Like, what's going on? And they said, who are you? And he goes, I am not the Christ. Well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. And then they asked, are you the prophet? Like they're looking for this guy in Deuteronomy 18. They're asking that question because they knew this one special prophet, although many prophets had come, this one prophet would, would, be, would arrive. And then in the Gospel of John, it shows Jesus when he first calls Philip, he goes, he says, hey, Phil, follow me. Philip goes, says yes, goes off, finds his friend Nathaniel, says to him, hey, Nate, 
We have found him of whom Moses in the law wrote. Now, when exactly did Moses so much as mention the word Jesus? He didn't. But they all knew the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 is Jesus. Nathaniel was super dialed into that. They were saying, this is him. But more than that, in, in verse 15, not only does he say he will raise up a prophet, he says God will raise up a prophet like me, like Moses. Well, how? Think about it. A little thought experiment with me. Moses, he was born into a context in which the Pharaoh had this edict, had, had given this edict to murder the firstborn child of all the families. And so his parents rescued him by putting him in that basket and sending him down the river. Y'all remember that? Jesus was born into a context in which Herod gave an edict to murder the firstborn son. And his parents rescued him by hauling him off to Egypt. Moses grew up in the courts of Pharaoh as a prince. And he divested himself of that honor to serve a slave people. Jesus spent all of eternity past in the courts of heaven as royalty. He divested himself of that royalty, of that honor. And he took on the form of a slave. Moses went off into the wilderness to make intercession for his people. Jesus also recorded him. John 17, making what? Intercession for the people. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. Jesus was the mediator of the new covenant. Moses was blown off by his own people the first time he came around. But then when he returned, they received him. Jesus was largely ignored by his own people, the Jews. But we are told that when he returns, everyone will know exactly who he is. Jesus is this prophet. He is this new and greater prophet. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, the author says, In the past, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by the Son. God's words come to us in Jesus. John calls Jesus the Word, right? Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the prophet's Word incarnate, the the walking Word. Jesus is the healing word for the wounded. Jesus is the wise word for the confused. Jesus is the orienting word for the lost. Jesus is the encouraging word for the discouraged and the downcast. Jesus is the reconciling word for the rejected Jesus is this tender word of life spoken over you. Jesus is the final word made flesh for you so that you can have a relationship not with words, but with the word, a person. And this word was a word that chose death so that you and I our children would choose life, choose 
life. Amen.